and during some of the toughest times, I have a little piece of paper in my wallet that I keep all the time, even to this moment, uh, of different things that I that mean to me, different sayings that mean a lot to me, uh, things that I strive for, recognizing my responsibility to give back. Reoccurring mantra I got into in college where I would just say, I'm going to break the mold. Two days after my second injury, my dad flew out to Indiana and we drove home. Went right up to my room, slept for a day, and then I woke up the next morning, I spray-painted my wall. No quitting me. I remember, you know, there is no quitting me and I won't, you know, I won't give up. The number one thing you gotta remember is your transferring energy. And whatever energy you got is the energy the viewers are gonna have. You are listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson, where we talk with experts of craft about their journey and what they have intentionally done to be their best self. As we talk with them, the hope is that we uncover intentional gems that you can use in your life. Now, let's kick it over to Brian to introduce this week's guest. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Intentional Performers Podcast. I am Brian Levinson. Excited to have you with us today for another incredible episode. But before we get to today's guest, I'd like to share a bit about myself. So my day job is that I work as an executive coach and a mental performance coach. And I founded a company called Strong Skills. And at Strong Skills, our team is on a mission to change how the world thinks about soft skills. See, we are facilitators and coaches, and we truly believe that labeling competencies like leadership, teamwork, and communication as soft devalues and minimizes the importance of these skills. And one of the strong skills that we teach is what we call shift your mind. And the teachings come from my book, which came out in October of 2020. If you enjoyed today's conversation or any of our past guests, then know you're going to love the book. You can head over to Amazon or anywhere books are sold to purchase, you can even listen to the audiobook via Audible. Thanks to all of you who have already purchased, and I've been truly overwhelmed by the response the book has gotten so far. Lastly, if you enjoyed today's conversation or any of our previous episodes, we'd love it if you went over to iTunes and wrote us a review. It really helps us expand our reach for the podcast. Thanks to all of you who have already done so, and let's continue to share these intentional performers with the world. Now to today's guest. Susan Chapman Hughes has quite an impressive resume, and I'm going to give you a little background on her before we dive into today's conversation. So currently, she consults with several Fortune 1000 C-suite leaders as they embark upon transformation and try to change their organization. She's the co-host of Navigating the Work Compass every Wednesday at noon Eastern on LinkedIn Live and is the author of the upcoming book, Why Should I Follow You?, which is a primer on connected leadership. And today's conversation really dives into what Susan thinks are best practices when it comes to leadership, specifically around empathetic leadership and the power that comes with empathy. She has as I said, quite an impressive resume. She's an independent director of the JM Smucker Company, where she serves on the compensation committee. She's also an independent director of Toast and chair of the compensation committee over there. 
Previously, she served as an independent director of Potbelly Corporation, where she led both the compensation and audit committees. We don't really get into the nuts and bolts of her work around compensation, but it's certainly a big, big part of her resume. She most recently was the executive VP and GM of Global Digital Capabilities, Transformation and Operations in the Global Commercial Services Division at American Express, where she led the digital transformation of customer experience and drove the use of big data, predictive analytics, and machine learning to power business strategy. Once again, with Susan, we could have gotten into artificial intelligence and analytics and data and the tech side of her background, but she really wanted to focus on humans and leadership and what we call strong skills at my company, but the world often calls soft skills. She managed a team of 1,500 plus people globally, including across many different platforms of the company while at American Express. So once again, she has a wealth of experience, a wealth of knowledge, but I think you're going to enjoy today's conversation because it really is about the wisdom she's gleaned, whether it's from parenthood or writing or leading teams. So it's my pleasure to introduce to you, Susan Chapman Hughes. Susan, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Where I thought we'd start is let's go right into it. Uh, You're in the process of writing a book called Why Should I Follow You? And when I asked you, well, what is that book about? You said essentially it's about empathetic leadership and the value of empathetic leadership. Can you start there and talk to us a bit about why empathy should be connected to leadership and why those should be uh, worked together? Yeah, thanks, Brian. So it's great to be on the show today. Um, I would I would also just say first of all that writing a book, you know, is probably one of the hardest things I've ever done in my life. And so when people tell you like, oh, I'm just gonna write a book, like I have a lot of respect for authors in ways that I probably didn't have before. Like it's it's definitely a a, a skill. Um, so um, for many years, people said to me, oh my god, Susan, you're such a great leader. It's, yeah, you're such a great leader. Uh, I'd be like, okay, that's interesting. Um, because I always felt like I was just doing what I was supposed to do to treat people well, to connect with them, to understand, you know, how to help them achieve the goals that they had, sometimes how to help them get goals if they didn't have them before, but really recognizing that the power of, of growing great leaders was really the key to success for me in business because uh, I've always been put in situations where you know, I wasn't the expert. I didn't necessarily know the business or have a lot of experience in those things before, but people were like, hey, you're a great people leader. You could figure this thing out. So I always had to lean on the talents and skills of the people around me. And so um, in order to even just understand and learn. And so I always recognized that being an empathetic leader gave me this uh, leg up, if you will. Um, And so, um, you know, for years, people have said, hey, you should actually write this out, like share, because every now and then I'll share something on social media, LinkedIn, et cetera. And it usually candidly happens when um, I get pissed off about something or something's crazy in the marketplace. And I'm like, I got to actually like say something about this. And then I, I realize that like maybe there's an opportunity to bring all of those things together. And so, you know, they always say, hey, look, you know, don't boil the ocean when you write a book. And so at first I was like, well, I'm going to write it for everyone. 
And then I realized, actually, there's a specific group of people um, that really need this. And that if we catch them at this point in time of inflection in their life and their career, it could really help change the sea of how leadership is done more broadly. And that is for people who are first time people leaders. Because as I reflect back to my own first experience of being a people leader, like I was terrible. And I, you know, I feel like I have to go back and apologize to you know, some of the people who worked for me because I had this belief being a type A, um, overachieving, we got to put points on the board person that everybody was like me, had the same motivations as me and um, should be managed the same. And that could not be further from the truth. Uh, the, there's all kinds of people that actually make organizations successful and you need, you know, everybody from the strivers who have, you know, high aspirations and lots of ambition to people to the, you know, the other end of the spectrum, which is like, I just want to come do a good job because I have focus on other things and everybody's role is important. And I think sometimes we forget that. Uh, and so the bigger your organizations get, the more you realize that the key to leadership is really around how you connect with people, how can you galvanize them around the strategy and the ideas that you want to work towards, how can you empower them to go and execute, can you have shared goals and shared interest, and can you create a situation where conflict can be resolved constructively for the good of the organization. And that all starts with trust. And the only way you gain trust is if you actually really spend time being an empathetic person first and an empathetic leader. And a lot of people, you know, the other reason why I, I think this is so important is because I think there are a lot of well-meaning leaders out there, but well-meaning doesn't always translate, translate into empathetic, right? Into empathy because your actions actually match the level of empathy that you can grow in yourself. And if you aren't doing things to push yourself out of your comfort zone, to learn new cultures and to engage with people in ways that are on their level and literally put yourself in their shoes and try to see things from their perspective, it's very difficult for you to actually help them uh, and connect with them on that level. So, so that's why I'm writing the book. Um, I'm hoping that, you know, it'll come out next year and a half or so. Uh, but I, you know, spent a lot of time speaking about this. I spent a lot of time coaching leaders and CEOs around this, especially over the last couple of years, because COVID has definitely, you know, the pandemic showed us the difference between, you know, leaders who connect with their folks and leaders who don't. Uh, and people, you know, voted with their feet for a long time, and they're continuing to vote with their feet. And I also think that this kind of like next generation of young people coming up in the workforce have very different expectations for life and uh, for engagement than many of us did. And so in order to, you know, be courageous enough to change the systems around how companies work, you have to be empathetic. Long way to answer your question, but there you go. So I was going to say, I'm going to have to interject because you just gave me like 12 themes to pull on. Okay. Uh, I call them like threads. And I think I'm going to just jump in and say, all right, let's let's go into that thread as we're talking. It's interesting when I prepare for these, I create a list of questions 
And then depending on the guest, I'll use a lot of the questions or none of the questions. And yeah. some of my favorite conversations are when I use like none of the questions. And with you, I think I'm probably not going to need to use a lot of those questions. So thank you for getting us started. And the thread that I actually want to start with is not on the empathy side. We'll get, we'll come back to the empathy side. Yeah. Cause I think there's, there's some real meat that we still need to unpack together on the empathy side. But you said something that caught my attention. You said writing a book is hard. Yep. And you said it's one of the hardest things you've ever done. And you've managed 1500 people. I mean, you've done yeah. some hard things in your life. What is it about you that allows you to go toward hard things? Uh, well, I, 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 it's a part of who I am, right? Um, if you had asked me 25, 30 years ago, um, you know, hey, Susan, where do you think you'll be in 30 years? I certainly would not have even understood or known the experiences that I've had were available as things that I could do. Right? Why, was, why was that something that you couldn't see back then? Um, I, I didn't grow up with... Um, a lot of people who worked in corporate, my parents, my mom was a nurse, my dad's a CPA has a small firm at 86, he still works. But, um, you know, in our community, a lot of the opportunities around business and corporate were not things that were available. Like I'm an African American female whose family has roots in the South and grew up in the Midwest. And so, you know, there's a very defined set of opportunities that really were available to my folks and, you know, my family members. So I, you know, be, you know, seeing a, a black CEO of a, of a company was not a thing when I was young. Right. Uh, and if it was a thing, it was like a, a small, like family owned company. It wasn't like of a fortune 500 company. I don't know the first year, but, you know, there was a gentleman who was the CEO of TIAA Cref many years ago, but he was like one of only, uh, you know, black CEOs. And then when you talk about black female CEOs, they just didn't exist, uh, you know, for of large companies. And so to see a black female executives, that just wasn't a thing. And so I didn't, I didn't know, um, you know, what that was. I was fortunate though um, that um, one of our neighbors actually because i grew up in ohio in cincinnati was uh he went he he worked for procter and gamble and he was one of the first black vps at png and so it was like my first exposure to it um and he and i are still very close we're very close to their family i call them actually other mother and other dad but they you know because of the experience that he had over the years I was able to have my eyes open to it, but I didn't know. And so, you know, you go back to this question of like, why do you do hard things? Uh, one, because I, I have a, a passion for learning. So my mother was a lifelong learner. My dad's a lifelong learner. Um, I, I get excited about learning new things. So that's the first thing. Number two, I learned a long time ago, just given kind of where I grew up and the, comfort of it right I mean, i'm from ohio, cincinnati ohio and so many of my classmates from high school even though we went to like one of the best schools in the country like live like five blocks away from where they grew up and you know their, their life is very similar to the life that their parents had and for me that was never enough i always wanted more adventure but in order to be able to do that i had to put myself in situations where i had the ability to get exposure to those things 
I've always tried to have an open mind to those things. So rather than going in with a preconceived notion of what the it is, I try to go saying, hey, look, this is going to be really cool. I get a chance to go and learn something new and experience some new things. I'm also an extrovert. So I draw my energy from different kinds of people. And so I've always had this bug. I remember when I was in high school, uh, I was in the band and um, we had a uh, the first international trip I went on, we went to Mexico uh, and we went to Merida, Mexico. And I remember sitting in the, you know, being in the square in Merida, Mexico, playing my bass clarinet and my keyboard uh and it was amazing and i was like this is so cool look at all these people look at you know i'm immersed in this language this is really fascinating and then the next year we went to europe and we went to london and to paris and i was like wow this is amazing and so i was like wow there's a whole world out there and i know i'm dating myself but uh we had encyclopedias at our house my mom always made sure we had the encyclopedia encyclopedia britannica i mean uh, these kids today just ask hey google it's not really you know um uh, and so um, it's really one of those things where I, you know, have the ability to like dream my way through things, you know, see what it was like by reading the pages of the book. We used to stay at the library every week. We had a library card and that was like the thing that gave us the option to see the world uh, in ways that we didn't before. And so for me, what I recognized early is I had a passion for it. I loved it. Uh, I wanted to engage in it. And then as I got older, I recognized that that was actually the secret sauce to making me better, right? So when you push yourself out of your comfort zone and you try to work on things that you're not good at in, in situations where the stakes are really low, it actually creates a tre tremendous opportunity for growth in a way that's not hurtful to you and that allows you to really grow. Uh, and so the pushing myself out of my comfort zone just became a thing of every year when I set my goals, and I've been doing it for many years, what am I gonna do differently this year to make myself uncomfortable to work on the things that I need to work on? Do you set goals every single year? And what do those, goal, those goals look like? Um, so um, many years ago, I, I think it was like 1999. Again, I realize this is like the time when a lot of people were born after that, but that, I digress. Um, <laughs> uh, it was like Y2K. This was like a whole thing, right? It was like the world is going to end or, you know, or you got to figure out what you're going to do next. And so me and my girlfriends got together and we we're like, hey, wouldn't it be great if we just figured out like what we could do next? And so we got in a room and we made, you know, we wrote out these little letters around what we're going to do for ourselves. And I had on there, like, I wanted to get promoted and I wanted to, you know, save a certain amount of money and do these things. And so I was talking to one of my mentors. I was like, isn't it great? Me and my girlfriends did this session is right. She's like, what did you put on your list? And I showed it to her and she was like, yeah, that's interesting. And she literally took my piece of paper and tore it up. <laughs> and I was like, for real? And then she said, listen, um, you're not dreaming big enough. You're not thinking big enough. And what I want you to do is like, I want you to put something on the paper that, you know, people would like literally be like, <laughs> yeah, okay. <laughs> and I was like, okay, challenge accepted. And so um, I got my girlfriends back together again. We cut out all these magazines. We got these magazines and we made these gold collages and we said, okay, we're going to dream big on the pictures and the overall goals. And then every year we're going to 
write down 10 things we can do to move ourselves in that direction. And I cut out like the Fortune Most Powerful Women uh, cover. It was like the first year they did it. Cut out my picture and put it in the middle of it. I cut out like a Grammy award. I have all kinds of stuff on this thing. Um, and, and I started just using that as my guidepost to say, what if? Uh, and, you know, the beauty of it is, you know, I haven't achieved some of the things on there. Some of the things I have gotten close to, and it's fine. And actually, now that I'm older, I'm kind of like, well, I'm not sure that's what the answer is. But it made me very purposeful and very clear about how I should spend my time growing myself and developing myself. And I, it also um, uh, reiterated the importance of you know, this whole thing, too much is given, much is required of like, how, what am I going to give? Uh, and what can I give to be impactful with the things that I've been gifted with? And, um, yeah, you know, I've tried to use that as the guidepost, even in all aspects of my life. And it's been a wonderful ride because what I've learned is, and, you know, these are go back to things you hear your mother and your grandmother and other people say, but and one of the things they say is like, if you take care of the giving, the receiving will take care of itself. And so being an unselfish giver, again, again, tying into this empathetic piece, really has helped me expose me to things that I literally never would have been exposed to. I've met people, uh, you know, uh, been in rooms where, you know, sometimes I'm like, I got to pinch myself. I can't believe, you know, I'm in this room. This is really, really cool. Uh, but it's also grounded me and recognized that the privilege that I have to be in the room means that I have to use that power for people who are less fortunate than I am. And uh, it's been a joy to do that. So uh, that's why I do it. Uh, it just makes for a much more fruitful life for me. Going going into the goals. So you mentioned 1999 was the first year you did it. We're approaching 2024. So you've got a 25 year anniversary yeah. Um, I don't know if you're already thinking about next year, but I'd be curious, like, what are you dreaming about for 2024? What are you thinking about that you want to accomplish? You mentioned a book in about a year and a half. Uh, what yeah. else is on that list and how is it different from what you were establishing in 1999? Not yeah. in a literal sense, but if you go underneath it a little bit and try to really explain how your thought process has grown from lifelong learning and how maybe you see the world differently and what's what are you thinking about when it comes to goals today that you weren't thinking about in 1999? Well, my goals, I've always tried to be, I've always tried to have goals that, you know, in 1999, so much of them were about professional goals, right? It was like, well, what, what do I want to be when I grow up? What kind of points do I want to put on the board around my, my career? What does that look like? And as I've gotten older, I've realized that like, look, first of all, uh, if you don't have your health, um, if you don't have good friends around you, if you don't have strong relationships, like none of that stuff is enjoyable and you have to prioritize building those relationships and engaging in those as much as you do as, um, you know, the energy you spend on like building your career. Uh, and sometimes they intersect and sometimes they don't. So for me, um, you know, on the kind of like professional side, you know, I'd sit on a couple of corporate boards right now. You know, I want to continue to engage and learn um, from those experiences. It's been a wonderful ride to be able to participate and engage uh, on those levels and continue to add value. So that's one. Number two, um, I thought I was ready to kind of like transition into board life 
and just consult and advise, but actually I, I want another bite at the apple. And so um, I want a CEO job or a COO job in a you know mission driven, smaller, fast growing uh, company and uh, that's either tech or tech enabled that, you know, will give me a chance to, you know, put some points back on the board, but also do something great for the world. So I'd love to, you know, I'm, I've been looking for that and I'd love to find that um, soon. Um, I'd also, you know, from a personal level, I have a seven-year-old daughter and I was kind of late to the party on the parental thing. And I just love spending time with her. And so watching her grow, she's phenomenally talented. So, you know, really being intentional about the time that we spend together and how we engage and, you know, same for you know, my family uh, and our family. Uh, I, I want to, um, uh, you know, I literally um, used to have this thing where I'd be like, oh, I got enough friends. I don't need more friends because I know a lot of people and I got a lot of close friends. And I was at Michelle Obama's um, tour and she talked about um, how as she's gotten older and her life has changed, her taking on new friendships has really enhanced her ability to navigate and enjoy um, her life. And so as I think about, you know, at first I was like, okay, well, I, if she can do it. I guess the rest of us can be open to it. But then I was like, you know, actually, that's actually really great advice. And so just putting myself in situations where I'm meeting new people and building new authentic relationships with them in, in different ways that expose me to different things uh, and that I can be of service and so support for them. So those are like some of the things that I have, you know, on my list. And I also have some just very basic things like I'm ready to get back to like the global travel and go back and see the world. It's, you know, the world is really struggling right now in so many different places, but and I don't want to, I want to do that with my daughter. I don't want her to miss uh, having some of the same experiences I had to travel. So there's two things that I want to pull on first, when you talked about having enough friends, I literally just said that to my parents, they were like, Oh, there's a couple that you should meet. I'm like, and actually the people we were with, they're like, Brian's got enough friends. And I was like, I was thinking the same thing. <laughs> like I'm pretty good. But if I think about my life and when it becomes richer, it usually is from conversations like this, that, right. I engage with people. I don't need more shallow like relationships, but I am always hunting deep relationships that add value to my life in, in some capacity. And hopefully I add value to theirs. Uh, so that really resonated. And I need to hold myself accountable to not cutting off yeah. or blocking out potential relationships. And to your point, if Michelle Obama can do it, why can't we? But I want to pull on this idea of being a mom. And yeah. I have a, a seven-year-old son and a six-year-old daughter. So we're in the same wheelhouse right now. And it's such an impressionable, beautiful age. And mm -hmm. I didn't say that about every age when I had kids. Um, but I want to get your perspective because I was also with someone recently and they talked about the pandemic. And one of the benefits that came out of the pandemic, which was horrendous and awful for so many, is women in leadership positions and work from home, creating more opportunities potentially for women in leadership positions to be able to wear more hats. And 
in the yeah. technology, and I say that and you're chuckling. Um, I'm laughing but, because like, we don't want to wear more hats for the record, right? We, we already wear so many hats. And actually what I've heard from my friends and my experience too is like, in addition to like the heavy demands of a heavy job, like we came the chief procurement officers, the chief, like, you know, chief bottle washer, cook, all of those things. Like, no, but we don't want that. Just for the record, we, we do not. I, I think I speak for most women. What we want is equal opportunity and support so that we can pursue the things that we love and enjoy as much as our male counterparts. Yeah, and I probably phrased that. Poorly. That's okay. Um, That's all good. But what I was trying to get at is that I'll just I'll just be blunt about it. I think for many years, men would go to the golf course and play around a, a golf. But if a woman had to go take care of her kid or pick her kid up from school. And obviously not all relationships are set up this way. And, yeah. and I'm generalizing, but the person I was talking to was saying that their wife uh, work from home is actually wonderful for her um, yeah. because she has more autonomy and more freedom with her schedule. And if she wasn't able to work from home, it would impact her career. And I know law firms are dealing with how, how do we keep women in the workforce? And there are challenges that exist with women at work. I have a ton of friends who are brilliant um, and have sacrificed in, in their careers in some capacity. And that's their choice. Maybe they wouldn't use that word, but they've chosen to yeah. maybe stay at home. Um, these are just interesting impacts and um, things for us to be discussing. And I'm yeah. curious to get your perspective um, on what it's like to have a seven-year-old and still have this desire to take another bite at the apple uh, and, and run a company and how you're thinking about um, being a working mom. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's so interesting because uh, it's hard. I'm like, I'm, I'm very close to my daughter. Uh, she, she's definitely a mommy's girl. And it's so interesting because, you know, I was telling her yesterday, I said, you know, mommy has to travel on Monday of next week because I've got to go to a board meeting. So I'm, you know, still working mom. And she just had a full on meltdown. And she's like, I don't want you to leave, you know? And so, you know, as a mom, it's hard. I mean, cause you see your kid like really not wanting you to be gone. You want to be present for them for every single last thing. But I also realized that I have to role model um, what I don't call it balance, but what integration looks like for her. So that as she gets older and wants to pursue her passions and her dreams, she feels like she doesn't have it does her choices don't have to be binary uh and you know i think the thing as you know, about being a mom or just a parent in general is like uh, you got these little people who are looking at literally everything you do and you know whether or not you like it or not they are absolutely like a sponge soaking it up emulate and in many cases emulating you and what you do and how you do it and uh, and so for me, it's just made me much more mindful about, um, you know, what what does she see? Not what do I think she sees or what do I want her to see, but just being really honest with myself about what is she actually seeing? And is that a good thing or is that a bad thing or is it just a, oh, it, an is thing? Um, so that's one. It's also made me much more conscious about, um, really connecting with her, like becoming a very active listener, um, not making assumptions about, you know, what she's thinking or how she's thinking, 
And also recognizing that my role as a parent is not to inform or impose my will on her. It is actually to help figure out what it is she wants and help her to guide that in a positive and in a, in a way that will impact the world. And so, you know, there are plenty of times where I'm like, you know, especially with girls, like, you know, the, the fashion thing was never a thing that I was interested in. But like, I have to be interested in it now because she cares a lot about it. And, you know, when I'm very flippant, like, oh, I don't really, you know, mommy doesn't really do that. It, I see it like impacting her. And so I have to be like, all right, well, look, you love fashion. Let's talk about what that looks like for you. And it actually has led to uh, me connecting her with the daughter of a friend of mine who um, designs clothes and does whatever. And so she's designed her own line of clothes and they're going to help her help us bring it to life. So, you know, they picked out fabrics, they're making patterns. And so, you know, she's got this collection of clothes that she's gonna have. And so we're gonna do a runway show for her friends. And so, you know, these are the kinds of things that I feel very fortunate to be in a position to help her like imagine and bring to life. These aren't, you know, my parents certainly didn't have the same kind of resources that we have. Uh, but it's also important to help her, you know, stay grounded because she could easily think that, you know, life is champagne dreams and caviar wishes or whatever it used to be from the lifestyles of rich and famous. And I'm like, not that I'm saying that's what we are, but I'm just saying like, you know, like I was talking to her yesterday and I was like, look, you know, you live in New York City where a significant portion, a large number of kids actually don't have a home. You know, and they have to figure out how to navigate either living in a shelter or living in a car or living with parents who have significant issues and them taking care of their you know, siblings and just helping them survive. And those aren't things that you a will even have context to understand, but you don't have to live like that. And so I want you to be mindful about being grateful for the positive and amazing things that you have in life and have perspective because number one, nobody likes a brat, <laughs> you know? Uh, and number two, having that perspective will allow you, again, to be empathetic and to, you know, find your place in the world around where you have, where you are supposed to have the greatest amount of impact for the positive good. So, you know, motherhood is, you know, writing a book is hard. Motherhood is the hardest job I've ever had. And it changes every day. I mean, the thing is, is, you know, once you think you've figured out a rhythm for who they are and what they're doing is the moment that they are not. <laughs> so being present is so important. It's really interesting. I I wrote about this recently. Parenting makes executing, let's say I'm a salesperson or an athlete or an actor or a musician. Yeah. If you're in the business of just executing, I think parenting makes executing harder. I think yeah. like it can easily be a distraction or make things harder to execute. But you hit the nail on the head for me, which is parenting, I think is a huge opportunity to improve and increase our leadership capabilities. Because to your point about parenting, like writing a book is more about executing, right? Like you're going to have to have discipline. You're going to have to write. You're going to have to do it every day. You're going to go back. It's it's an execution job. But leadership, like all the things you're mentioning about parenthood 
we apply to leadership, right? Empathy. We need to have boundaries. We need to communicate. We need to have patience. We need to have emotional regulation. Like these are the keys to parenting, which I agree. It's the hardest thing I've ever done. Um, And they're also the keys to great leadership. And I think what we don't always talk about in our society, and you mentioned careers, uh, like before we started recording, you said people tend to prioritize their careers above all else in our society. And I think sometimes we make the mistake in thinking that when someone becomes a parent, they're not going to be as good at their job. When the people that I coach, and I coach 30 plus people that are in leadership positions, they become better leaders because they're better because of parenting, because parenting well, every single day, it. it's it's a leadership challenge yeah. every and, single day. And, and um, you know, I, you know, I talked to my daughter about being flexible all the time, right? Um, being a parent forces you to have to be flexible because you, you know, I don't know how your seven year old is, but when I talk to the other moms, like this whole thing of not listening, you know, strategically tuning you out, <laughs> you know doing what they want to do when they want to do it. I mean, like, these are all like things that like, you're like, wait, I'm your mom. Like, well, and my daughter's like the, the kid who's like, when I say, she's like, well, why should I do that? Why don't, why? Cause I said so, well, why? You know, so there's like, of course, some of it has come up and it's cause I was like that when I was little, but um, you know, it is, it forces you to be flexible. It forces you to be open. Uh, it humbles you. And, and I think those are all great qualities of great leaders, right? If you're, if you're humble, if people know they, they can trust you, if, they, if you are a person of your word, you know, one of the wonderful, my, my mom gave me so many gifts, but a couple of the gifts specifically that she gave me, she gave me one unconditional love. Like, I don't care what you do, I'm still gonna love you. You, you know, I don't care who you are, I'm still gonna love you. I may not like it, but I'm still gonna love you. And you're always gonna know that. Um, number two, she gave me a sense of self-confidence. Um, literally she would say like, there isn't anything that you can't accomplish if you put your mind to it. If it doesn't work out, you can just come home. And you know, home, home for me for a lot of years was like physical, but then I realized actually home was like all the lessons that she gave me and taught me around resilience and knowing how to take care, you know, take myself, take care of myself through challenging times, et cetera, so on and so forth. Um, and, and um, she also role modeled consistency. And when you talk to people who knew her, she was exactly the same all the time. It doesn't mean that she didn't have things she had to work on and she was working on, but she was consistent. And you, her, you know, her word was her bond. And if she said she was going to do something, she did it. The way she acted and engaged was the same no matter who. Um, you know, one of the funniest stories, I got to tell the story. You know, in my life, I've been to a lot of shishi fufu um, dinners and engagements, and so I took my mom to this engagement, to this party, this dinner. One of these like really like highfalutin, like everybody and their mother was there. It was like the the who's who's of whatever, and so they served the dinner. And so my mother uh, was a vegetarian, so she got the vegetarian dish. And I don't know what it, I can't even remember what it was, but the chef um prepare it was delicious right and there was another woman at the table who had had it and she was like oh my goodness that was so good and my mother was like yeah and they gotta have a lot of it back there that they are just gonna get rid of so she called the waiter over and was like hey um you know that dish i had can you have the chef pack some of that up so i can take it home with me and at first i was like oh my god i'm like mortified (laughs) and like it was hilarious because 
every single other person at the table was like, well, I, I want some too. Can you have them pack me up some too? That'd be really great. Like all these shishi foofa people. And this woman said, she's like, oh my God, I really wanted it, but I just didn't know how it would look. And I just, you know, I wanted to to have it. And you know, when your mom said to ask for it, it just opened the door and, you know, they totally like loved spending time together. Uh, and, you know, so I, I think that, you know, as leaders, you know, you know, unconditionally recognizing who your people are, right? And like really knowing who they are, because y'all, again, if somebody's acting out at work or they behave a certain way, it, there's a reason for that, right? There's something that has shaped them into the person that they are. So really understand, I'm not saying you got to accept it, but if you take time to understand it, it will help you understand how to move with that person. Um, you know, giving your people a sense of self-confidence that they can achieve things that they didn't think that they could achieve. So really, you know, paying attention to what are the talents they bring to the table and, you know, what are the things that you could see for them and exposing them to those things and giving them the playbook on the good, the bad, the ugly, so that, uh, so that as they navigate, they can move through. And being consistent in the way you engage with them um, are three ways that I have just found have really just built phenomenal relationships for me over time. And even when I've had to make tough decisions to you know let somebody go because they were in the wrong role or whatever, they always came back and said, "Look, you didn't do it, and just like bye. You how, all you know you were." careful and cautious and thoughtful about how you helped me navigate and you helped me go find the thing that I should have been doing as opposed to this and help give me help me get the courage to actually want to go do it. When you were managing a global team of 1500 people plus people, yeah. uh, what, what were you consistent with? Um, well, number one, making sure we we're all marching on the same, you know, page. Uh, number two, empowering them. Because uh, when you manage that many people, you have to have, you, you know, you're not doing their job every day. Uh, number three, inspiring them, right? So giving them reason for excitement and to believe. Uh, and number four, recognizing them. Um, so making sure that people felt good about coming in every day. And then number five, creating a path for this value proposition of why do you come here every day? And for some of those people, it was, hey, I want to be promoted. And for some of those other people, it was like, well, actually, I really just want to be able to leave on Tuesday so I can go and, you know, see my kids play soccer or do whatever and not have everybody come back and give me a hard time for it. So, um, you know, leadership isn't hard. I mean, like the tenets of it aren't hard, but the commitment to doing it takes effort and engagement. And I find that a lot of people are lazy. And they don't want to get out of, or they're afraid and they don't want to get out of their way to actually go do those things. Yeah. I think uh, I, that resonates with me. The laziness piece, I don't think it usually is because the reason they're in their leadership position is usually not because they didn't work hard. Um, they usually work hard. The efforts there, um, you can disagree with that. That's fine. But like, my point would be like, most people work hard to get to where they're at. There's other factors that get them to that yeah. place too. Um, but it's not, it's not the effort, it's the misguided effort and perhaps them taking the same approach that got them to where they are to then not understand that what got them there isn't necessarily what's going to allow them to, to lead other people and to manage other people. Um, so I, I think like that nuance is really important and I'll give you one example and I want to get your perspective on this. 
Um, I have a sports background, spent a lot of time with athletes and sports teams. And there's a story that was once told to me um, about Coach K, who used to coach the Duke basketball team, yeah. men's basketball team, and also coached the USA uh, men's national team. And he was coaching Kobe Bryant, who was this legendary basketball player, and also coaching Carmelo Anthony, who's a legendary basketball player. And they're both very different. And the reality was that Kobe Bryant was a why person like your daughter. He wanted to know why things existed. Curiosity was key to him. Curious George was like his favorite book as a kid. So he always needed to know why things existed the way that they did. Whereas Carmelo coach K would describe as a yes, sir person. So he would just say, yep, I'll do what you tell me to do. Tell me where to be and I'll be there. And it's interesting because I think for those of us that are more why people, we might resonate with a why person, but if we're working with a yes, sir person or a yes, ma'am person, they need their marching orders to go. Yes, sir. Or yes, ma'am. And so for you, I'm sure in the 1500 plus people, there are some that are why people like your daughter. And then there are others that are just, Hey, give me my marching orders and I'm going to go out and do it. Um, how do you think about those two? And I know it's a binary, but I think it's that's helpful. But I think that's right though. And the, and the point is, is, um, you know, I just, you know, cause I said, t- tell these stories around, direct reports, I'd be like, you know, and these are hypothetical names, names, right? There's nobody, I'm not using anybody's name for real. Like, you know, Mike um, was a, uh, needed a high level of support and engagement um, for the work that he was doing, right? Uh, and so Mike needed an add a boy or add a girl like every day, right? You have to be like, Mike, you're doing such a great job. Yeah, you know, thank you so much. I just want to, you know, shout you out for, you know, being the person who helped do X, Y, and Z. Hey, everybody give Mike a, you know, whatever. And Mike would be like, whoop, I got recognized. I'm fired up. Let's go. Whereas, take me for an example, I'm the exact opposite. Like, I'm the kind of person who's like, let's just get on with it. I need y'all to get out of my way. And so, you know, when my manager would be like, hey, um, all right, you got your marching orders. I know you're going to come back to me whenever you you know, need help or whatever, you've got the self-awareness to do that, you're going to engage. And so for me, I get super excited when leaders would just leave me alone and let me go do my thing because I had the discipline to be able to go back to them and be like, hey, look, this is not working out. You know, let me figure out how to put things in a cadence so that what you need, you can get on a regular basis, but also you can basically leave me alone and let me go do what I need to do. Uh, And so I think that, you know, as good leaders, you take the time to learn that. Right. Uh, And what it does is it helps you really help not only round out um, uh, them as leaders and as people, but it helps you round out as leaders and people. And you learn a lot more from them because they're willing to give you feedback and share things, you know, your blind spots or whatever to you um, in ways that, you know, but you have to be open, right? You have to come come as coachable is what I say, right? You know, one of the, you know, people say, oh, Susan, you know, you're hiring leaders and you're looking for different folks. Like, how do you think about um, uh, what are the key things you want from, you know, people, the skills you look for or the capabilities? I'm like, the first one is they're coachable. I'd much rather have somebody who's like pretty good, who's willing to learn and grow, who's open and coachable, who's always going to be thinking about the team than somebody who's just brilliant and an a-hole and can't get along with anybody um, who, you know, wants to suck up all the air in the room 
because the trade-off is just not the same, right? And, you know, I've worked for uh, all kinds of people. Um, and, you know, when you can really connect with people and support them and, you know, give them the positive feedback, do those things, it really makes a difference in terms of how they show up for you. You know, the leaders that I respect the most are the ones who saw me, who understood who I was, what I was trying to accomplish, were not intimidated by that, could appreciate, you know, who I was as a person, and really worked hard to help me, whether connecting me with people who could, you know, help me, but also just giving me feedback that helped me navigate based on what they saw in terms of what they would see. And the leaders who didn't, I just had no time for. I mean, I worked for this person who um, every time this person gave me feedback, uh, the feedback was always about how to make them feel more comfortable working with me and doing their job, not about how to make me better. And when I called this out, they just had a total meltdown and was like, oh my God, I can't believe you say that. And I was like, let me just give you some specific examples because you know, I'm pretty self-aware. And the reason why I'm self-aware is because I seek it. I'm, I'm always looking for feedback. I got this whole ecosystem around me of people who are willing to tell me the truth, not what I want to hear. And this is what I'm hearing from all of them. And I know this is an area because I'm also paying attention because I'm seeing how people are re reacting to me both verbally and non-verbally when I say things and when I engage. And so I'm working on this, but then I see you give me this piece of feedback that doesn't fit at all. And what I realize is because you're very uncomfortable with my style and the way that I engage. And um, rather than saying, hey, look, th these are the ways that I think this could help you navigate. It literally is about, can you change your style so I can feel more comfortable with that? And, and you know, that's crazy to me, right? Yeah. How selfish. <laughs> Yeah. When you're a CEO of a company this time next year, what would have changed? You mentioned being a, a terrible first time leader. What are you doing differently? And obviously there's probably a lot, but can you give us like a few nuggets that have changed and evolved that when you're in that leadership position next year, yeah. that you're going to do differently than you did when you first became a leader? Yeah. So number one, I've had a lot of life experience to help shape me into the leader that I am today. So thank God I'm not that person anymore. Um, I, th I think as, as a CEO of a company, there's a few things that are really important. Um, one, really understanding your stakeholders. W you know, what is the value proposition that, you know, comes with them? So if it's publicly traded, it's your, you know, your shareholders, it's your, the analyst community, it's your employees. You know, so what, what is the stakeholder roadmap actually look like? And being clear about, um, you know, what is most important, because that changes over time in terms of Number two, having a real clear strategy on how to win. Uh, and, and to me, that is not just about the, you know, profit pools and where the, the right to play and, you know, what your, you know, total adjustable market is and how much of that you can go after and how you gain share and all those, you know, how quickly can you build sales and drive an efficiency across the organization. But it's also who, the who, who are the people that are sitting in the mix that you need to, to make this strategy that, that everybody agrees on um, is the right thing. The, the third is what are the systems that you can just put in place so that everybody can stay on the same page? Uh, because I find that um, 
you know, if you if you ask a lot of employees, uh, what what are the one thing that they really don't love is they don't love change, right? Uh, and they don't love um, lack of information and transparency. And so the more that you can prepare an organization to to be a change um, absorber and an integrator, the the more likely you're going to have people who are going to connect and want to be there. Um, number four, what is that connection? How do I inspire these people? You know, wh what's the barometer of where their starting point is and where do we want them to go? So, you know, is this a turnaround where they've been like, you know, struggling for a long time and are like, right, oh yeah, we'll just wait you out, you know, et cetera. Or is this like a fast growing environment where people need to like have tools to help them continue to grow and, you know, eliminate roadblocks so they can keep going at it. Um, to me, those are the ingredients of like being a great CEO, right? Uh, and staying humble, but recognizing that I got to call the ball. Like, so being decisive is also very important. Uh, because again, if you ask people like, well, what are the reasons why they're unhappy? It's, well, you know, we've been sitting here and nobody will make a decision. I don't feel empowered. You know, like who's gonna make the decision? What? So having the decision framework be very clear about who's gonna call the ball, when, where, and how, and people knowing what their role is and playing in that, so. I smiled ear to ear because we always, not we, I think the worlds that you're in, the worlds that I'm in, leadership's about listening, it's about empathy, it's about asking great questions, it is all those things. And at the end of the day, it's a heavy seat and it requires someone to make a decision. And if they screw up, say, Hey, that was on me. That's if right. They have success. They can say, Hey, that was on us. Right. And, and I think that's the piece of leadership that sometimes we don't talk enough about, which is Absolutely. no, no, no. If you're not going to make the decision, your people are going to get very frustrated. And that's if you're right. wishy-washy or flip-flopping and constantly like going through, have the empathy first, have the curiosity, ask the questions and then make the damn decision you gotta call and the ball. forward. Call the ball. I like you that. You got to call the ball. Uh, and I, I, um, you know, because I, I, you know, I, I've had the, the benefit of sitting in a lot of seats close to the, you know, the sun, if you will. And the ones that are like the, the most frustrating is when people just don't make decisions. It's like, come on, y'all. Somebody has to call the ball, right? Um, somebody has to be the, the one to get in here and mix it up. And like, what are you doing? So I, I, I think it's a critical part of leadership. When, when I think about myself, I... I pretty much work for myself. I've got a team. We do we do some stuff, but I'm not running a big organization. I'm definitely not in a big corporate organization in some of the places that you've been. But if I was, I I think some of the things that I would struggle with if I was a CEO of a Fortune 500 company would be around the attention to detail needed, the yeah. ability to look at the numbers and the finances. Like I understand people. Like and and yeah. that's why I'm in the world I'm in. For you, as you take on a role like that, what is something that you would need support in? What is something that you look at and you say, you know what, this is the thing that may be a weakness of mine. And as much as I want to learn and I need to learn, constantly learn on that side of the house, what's the thing that you look at and say, hey, that's the piece that maybe I, I need more support on? Yeah, I mean, I, I think a lot of it has to do with like how you grew up, right? So um Look, I, I can work my way through the financials in, in a very uh, efficient way um, because I've trained myself to do that, but I've never been a CFO before. So, you know, having a strong CFO is important, but I think that's important for every CEO because, you know, uh, that's why there's a whole job associated with that, right? 
I think the other, you know, piece for, for me is just building a really strong team. It's not, I'm really great at building strong teams and continuing to force myself to get out of their way. Because I think a lot of CEOs, no matter what they say, you tend to lean into the things that you are the expert in and you know extremely well, and it tends to close you off to new ideas and great opportunities um, that may come your way. And so for me, it's like continuing to like, not, you know, continue the balance of how much do you have to be in the detail versus how much do you have to be out of the detail? Um, you know, I, I don't know what it's going to be like. Everybody has always said that, like, look, there's nothing like being the CEO. Like, once you get in the seat, it's a whole different situation. Uh, but I'm excited about it. And I think it's a cool opportunity, you know? Yeah. Yeah. We call it working in the business versus working on the business. And yeah. A lot of times that position requires people to work on it and be involved in strategy and higher level. And especially founders often struggle with removing their ability to work in it to then work yeah. to work on. You know, it. The, the beautiful thing is, is that this is where like keeping the pushing yourself out of your comfort zone is really important because the more exposure you get, right, the the um, you have a lot of resources available to you. You know, I, I'll relate it to something. Um, very personal and I and this was a great lesson for me. Um, when, when my mother passed away, uh, we were super close. And what I didn't realize is that there were things that she just did for me that um, I didn't, I didn't have, I never had to think about. Like, you know, um, I never had to think about when I needed support. I never had to think about um, her knowing that, you know, I was going through something. I never had to think about you know, the encouragement I needed to take that step to go on to the next thing because she innately knew because I'm her kid. Uh, I was her youngest, we were super close. And so she just did those things for me uh, without me being really conscious of A, what they were and B, that she did it. Um, and so when she died, what I learned through lots of help is that I still needed those things. And when I was, you know, struggling, working my way through and like how I'm gonna live my life without my mom, you know, my therapist actually said to me, she's like, you know, your mom did all of these things for you that you just kind of took for granted. And now you still need them. But there's two things that you need. One is you have to have recognition of the what it is you need right now, right? What do you what do you need? How do you recognize that you need it? Um, and number two, you have to have a, a, a set of resources that you have put in place already. So when you need it, you're not calling for the first time asking for it. And I, I mean, it was like game changing for me. And I have used that in my practice of leading teams and leading people and being very conscious of what are the things that I actually need, knowing that also those things change. And can I set up a network and a resource to help me have access to those things when I need it? And so, Sometimes that is somebody who works on your team. Sometimes that is a set of resources outside of the organization that you fostered and built a relationship with or have on the ready, if you will, so that when you need to call them, you can call them. But always having this conscious engagement around what do you need? There's something really cool about what you just did with sharing the story about the therapist because you know, we always hear the analogy of put your oxygen mask on first before you serve others when we talk about leadership. 
And to your point, there are some leaders that I know that are great at asking their people what they need. Hey, your mom passed away. What do you need? Um, and I'm yeah. here for you. Right. But then when their mom passes away, they don't ask themselves that same question. That's um, right. And so there's something beautiful about the idea of empathetic leadership. I, all right. I, what do they need? But I need to do that for myself as well and ask myself those questions to make sure my needs are taken care of and not assume that my needs are the same as their needs. And I think that's the same when we're in partnership or relationship with, with anyone else um, yes. as well. Um, all right. I want to start to wind down here and, and, and finish up. Um, and where I thought we'd close is I've had on people on the podcast who had told me, Hey, I think empathy is dangerous. Um, empathy can get us into trouble. Uh, if we assume that, um, we, we really understand what Susan is going through as an African-American woman, we close ourselves off in some way. And they would argue to me that instead of empathy, we should go towards compassion. And maybe there's a distinction to be made between empathy and compassion. I see you shaking your head. Give the case for empathy instead of compassion. Listen, I think you, I think we all should be compassionate, right? Compassion just means that you are willing to be open and supportive particularly in times of need or challenge for people, right? Um, I would argue that you can be open and supportive um, in times of need and challenge for people, but yet not know what they actually need and be tuned in to being able to engage with them in a way that they feel supported and they feel heard and they feel understood. It doesn't mean that being empathetic means that you're always gonna do what that person wants and you're gonna give them what they want, right? What it means is you have a better understanding of why they make the decisions that they make the way they make them. And so you are informed in a way that allows you to have a conversation with them that makes them feel heard and understood, but doesn't mean you're always gonna say yes to the things that they want, right? And, and I'm gonna use a very real tangible example. Um, when George Floyd was murdered, um, I worked with people who were very, you know, compassionate, you know, oh, you know, this is really, you know, but did not know how to meet the moment for the a large group of the employee population because they had no sense of understanding who those people are and what drove them and why they were so upset or why they were so challenged or why it was so painful because they had no level of active empathy. They had no friends and no people in their circle who look like the people who were really struggling. And I would argue the same thing during a lot of the Asian hate challenges that have happened and a lot of the other things. And so as leaders, you have to be empathetic means, you know, you are trying to put yourself in their shoes to understand, which means you're open to their cultures, you're eating their food, you're learning why you know they make the decisions that they make, you're understanding what are the things that actually drive you. It just makes you more informed because you can't ever make a decision that is gonna make everybody happy, but you can make an informed decision that allows you to have a conversation with people that makes them feel heard and understood, even if the decision is not one that they want. 
Susan, you brought up some heavy stuff at the end, and I like the heavy stuff, the deep stuff. And so I want to keep going, but I know your time is valuable. So, so let's, well, let's come with, back and do this again. Yeah. Well, let's close with this, though. Uh, if people want to find you on social media, I know you have a website. Uh, the book will hopefully come out in the next year or two. Where can they where can they follow along? You can uh, go to my website at SusanChapmanHughes.com. You can find me on Twitter slash X at, at Susan uh, Speaks. And that's my um, moniker across uh, Instagram and others as well. Uh, LinkedIn is just Susan Chapman Hughes. So you can find me there. Perfect. And you can listen to all of these conversations at strongskills.co slash podcast. It's weird to say Twitter X, but I'm at Brian Levinson. Yeah. Uh, and LinkedIn's the other place I like to play at Brian Levinson as well. Susan, great to have you on. Yeah, Thanks for having me. Your wisdom and knowledge around leadership is as much appreciated and got me thinking about a few things. So I really appreciate you. Excellent. I appreciate you too. Thanks for having me on. Thank you for listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson. Here is this week's episode gem. And when I was, you know, struggling, working my way through and like, how am I going to live my life without my mom? You know, my therapist actually said to me, she's like, you know, your mom did all of these things for you that you just kind of took for granted. And now you still need them, but there's two things that you need. One is you have to have recognition of the what it is you need right now, right? What do you, what do you need? How do you recognize that you need it? Um, and number two, you have to have a, a, a set of resources that you have put in place already. So when you need it, you're not calling for the first time asking for it.